Thank you. Yes, now we'll be looking at our notes here, but uh, I'm going to have to have a couple of, say, three more volunteers uh, during this first part that we're talking about here. Someone who will be reading in Zechariah, someone who will be reading in Malachi, somebody who will be reading in James. Do I have three volunteers? And I'll call on you real quick. Right back there, sir. You'll be uh, uh, Zechariah. Okay, you'll be Malachi. Where's my James guy? Right in the back. Very good. Okay, James. And I'll, it's actually down here. Okay, now watch. We kind of reviewed the book of Acts and the people of God, the Christians, and what they were doing that first century. But now one thing I uh, failed to mention, have you ever done this? Maybe it has to do with a senior moment. But right there in the end, let me tell you what was happening to me. There's one more point I need to point out. Now, what on earth is that? Did I seem to be waffling a little at the end? That's what I was doing. What, what, okay, here's what it is. They continually brought up the new setup. There was a new setup that's still there now. And it's reality. <laughs> Simon Peter in the Pentecostal sermon pointed out God's on the throne. His son has just been seated at the right hand. And the spirit has come to live inside his people to fulfill his will. Wow. That brought up again, brought up by Stephen. He's full of the Holy Ghost. He says when he's bitten, did you notice that they bit him before they stoned him? Pretty awful thing. When he was dying, he said, I see the Father on the throne and Jesus standing at the right hand. And Simon Peter, when they were questioned about why they were disobeying the law, he said, we'd rather obey God than man. And I want you to know the God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has sent his son and has raised him up to be a prince and a savior. And he's put the Holy Ghost in us to give us the power to obey him. Did you know that's what reality is right now? Reality is the Father is on the throne, an absolute monarch, working all things together for good. His Son, who is our Savior, accomplished our salvation, is at the right hand of God. He's our mediator, giving us fantastic privileges in prayer, like Moses and Jacob never had ever since he went up there. And the Holy Ghost, who is God, actually lives inside us to give us the ability to fulfill the Great Commission and the will of God. Wow. So that's the setup, and that is why we can expect revivals. Okay, now, here are my questions. We're talking about Baptists and the Great Awakening. Who are the Baptists? One of the best Baptist history books is by a guy named Macbeth, and he says the Baptist principle is, what does the Bible say? Now, I went to an interdenominational university and seminary. Forgive me, please. Okay, and I'm going to tell you, I had fundamental Presbyterians and Methodists living on my hall. And if they heard that, they would say, Presbyterians also want to know what the Bible says. No, you don't. Every other group of Christians are undergirded or built on uh, other things like confessions and uh, uh, councils, 
tradition. Now, they will say the Catholic Church is built on tradition equal to Scripture. We're not. Oh, yes, you are. How come you christen babies? See, there has always been since the beginning, and even Catholic scholars admit this, there have been people independent of the state church, persecuted people whose only question was, what does the Bible say? Okay, when do we baptize? Who do we baptize? How do we baptize? Get your answer from the Bible. If you make a suggestion about teaching or practice, we want to see chapter and verse. There have always been people like that. And history gives them different names. Now, be careful about this because history is written by the winners. I remember reading one time uh, something that was in a public school history book in Mexico about the Alamo. You ought to read how they tell the story of the Alamo. <laughs> this impregnable fortress. Uh, no one could but brave Santa Ana and his army went over there, risked their lives, and wiped out the Texans. A different story. Uh, history's written by the winners. The winners in Europe usually were the bad guys. Okay, And some of what we know about those early what we now call Baptists, will accuse them of heresy, tell all kinds of far-fetched stories because the writer of the history doesn't like them. But there is no doubt about this. There have always been people who were Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, whose basic question was, what does the Bible say? And that's what they would do. Okay. Now, uh, when the Reformation came in the 1500s, the Reformation was basically uh, begun by people who I believe were Christians, and they were, though, affiliated with what the Book of Revelation would call the Harlot Church. Have you ever read the Book of Revelation? There are two women who are symbolic in the Book of Revelation, both of them associated with a city. See, there's the Lamb's Wife associated with the new Jerusalem. And then there is the harlot associated with Babylon. Okay, now watch. We follow in the book of Revelation a prediction of something that did occur in the first few centuries. And that's this. The heresies found in those seven churches, Nicolaitanism, which was the idea of making the pastor a priest. It was about ruling the people taking uh, authority that Jesus never gave the leaders of the church. Nicolaitanism and Balaamism, which is mixing paganism with Christianity. Okay, those two things came together and over centuries gave us the harlot church. It is recognized by the fact that the harlot commits fornication with the kings of the earth. It was affiliated with the state. We know when that happened. Of course, there was that emperor who claimed to become a Christian. And then the next emperor came along of the Roman Empire who actually made the Christian faith part of the government. Okay. And now these humble, persecuted men who were pastors became priests and government officials with golden rings, long flowing robes, wealth and power. And that was the harlot church, which was... The uh, lamb's wife nowadays is local. 
I've had people say when I talk about the church in the Bible, I've had people say, do you mean the local church? I said, from my understanding of the Bible, the church is local. It's an assembly. And you know, uh, and it's all assemblies assemble. Some other idea of the church doesn't even go with the word church. So right now, uh, Jesus Christ is the head of Riverview Baptist Church, not just of some great worldwide entity, see? But okay now, so this false church was universal and visible and affiliated with the rulers of the world. And it became the law that your children be baptized. And so many things were perverted and changed. You say, you mean the Catholic Church. The fact is, the Catholic churches and the Orthodox churches, what they are today, developed over hundreds of years. They started to be like Riverview. That's where we started. Got to beware. And soon Nicolaitanism and Balaamism defiled the churches, and then through the conversion of the emperor, uh, it became a part of the government. They were happy not to be persecuted anymore, but permanently damage was done to the cause of Christ. So the Reformation were men within the harlot church who thought of it as the church of Jesus Christ. Got to remember, they thought it was the church of Jesus Christ. But they saw the wrong, the false doctrine, uh, purgatory, uh, priest and the pope being able to grant forgiveness of sins, uh, salvation by works and sacraments. They saw the wrong, began to expose it, and a great personal jeopardy stood up against the harlot church, especially the Roman Catholic Church. You know who they are, Luther, Calvin, Swingley. These men did so. And in so doing, they were doing a lot of good. They were doing a lot of good. But you know what? They weren't the Baptists. The Baptists existed at the same time and long before. Long before. They had many names. One of them was the Anabaptists. Anabaptist means baptized again. Why? Everybody had been christened. They thought that was baptism. It was the law. The king forced you to baptize your baby. Okay, so all of them had been christened or they thought it was baptized as babies. But now these people who say, what does the Bible say? Would say you're not supposed to baptize anybody but a convert. Like John the Baptist, they would say you got to repent first. Then you're baptized, and it isn't a little bit of water. It's a burial. So they're doing it different. So the converts of these people we call Baptists today were baptized while they're older, when they're able to repent. And so the world said, you are baptizing them again. You are Anabaptists. Now, there are many different names. A lot of you could stand and lecture Baptist history here with those many names. But by the 1600s, in England especially, the name Baptist became the one where they landed, the Baptist in England. And we know actually who they were. This wasn't the origin of the Baptist, but this was the time when the name Baptist was the one that was accepted and, uh, and now continues to be uh, to this day. The English Baptists were in two groups. The first ones were General Baptists. That means they believed in a general atonement. 
that Christ died for everybody in the world. Okay. Then there were the particular Baptists. They were the ones who believed that Christ died only for those who would believe, the elect. He died for the particular ones that he was to save. General, particular. Okay, quite different groups, but both Baptists. Sometimes I'll have somebody say to me, did you know that originally all the Baptists were Calvinists? And usually they're pretty scholarly people that say that, but I don't say this because I'm a nice guy. Have you noticed that? But I know in my mind he doesn't know what he's talking about. Actually, the very earliest English Baptists were general Baptists. They believed in a universal atonement. Okay, but the fact is, Baptist, hope you get this, Baptist, the Baptist movement by history is a movement having to do with practice and not doctrine. And the Baptists over the centuries adopted different systems of doctrine. Some were Arminian, some were Calvinist, some were in between where you ought to be, <laughs> okay, over the years. See, I've had people argue with me about other issues. That's not the Baptist view of sanctification. He doesn't know what he's talking about. There is no Baptist view of sanctification because Baptists have had several views of sanctification. What we do know is this, that every believer is a priest. We have soul liberty. We're allowed to read the Bible and make decisions for ourselves compared with studying the scriptures. So that's who we are. So that's who the Baptists were through all these years. And, uh, and like I said, many different names, but they have existed down all through these years. And uh, in America, that's kind of D down there prior to 1730, the Baptists in America were a sect, a very small group. See, up in the north, the pilgrims came. They were separatists. Now, that's not a regular Puritan. Now, I won't go into a long deal about them. But they became the Congregational Church. And then here come the Puritans, the Massachusetts Bay Colony, and they developed basically into Presbyterians. You see, so a lot of difference. And you know about Roger Williams and Clark up there in New England, how they were persecuted by the powers that be. They were the Baptists, but they were a tiny little group, a sect in the north. There was a group of Baptists in the south, a small little group, prior to 1730. I have a reason for bringing up that year. What was the Great Awakening? I defined it as a widespread revival of Bible Christianity in the North American British colonies, approximately those years, 1738 to 1760. Now, no one can ignore the Great Awakening. Uh, you know Glenn Beck? Okay. Uh, driving a lot, I listen to a lot of talk radio. I always have, even before it was popular. Uh, we'd come through, there was a place in Dayton, Ohio, that was a talk show radio station before anybody else, before Rush Limbaugh. I always liked to turn to it because I like to hear kooks. There'd be people calling up that were out of their mind, believed in aliens from another planet and all that stuff. So I entertained by it. So I've listened. Well, now they have more sensible talk radio and once in a while. And for a while there, Glenn Beck is always on something. And uh, this time he was on Refounding America. I want you to help me to refound America. And he was going back to the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. Okay. 
and talking to the radio. Sometimes I talk to inanimate objects. Do you do that? Is that a sign of in mental illness? I would say, Mr. Beck, you got to go beyond that. The United States of America cannot be understood unless you understand the Great Awakening. That's where we start seeing it. Then later on, I found out that in one of his TV programs, he started featuring George Whitfield in The Great Awakening. And I don't agree with Glenn Beck on everything, but that was right. And you can't ignore The Great Awakening, even if you don't believe in God. It was a phenomenal, amazing, supernatural event that spread throughout the colonies and converted probably 50,000 people, which was a whole lot of people with that small population, and permanently affected us, okay? And there were Baptists there, but they were a sect, little tiny group, okay? Now, what is a revival? Okay, I want you to think with me about this. Revival is the work of God by which he restores his people to the level of submission and faith at which he can grant them his, I'm calling it, covenant blessings. Okay, now, revive in the Bible is an Old Testament word. Wilt thou not revive us again that thy people may rejoice in thee? Revive thy work in the midst of the years. The same word in the Hebrew Bible is translated quicken in Psalm 119. Quicken thou me according to thy word. What does it mean? Bring back to life. What it means is this. Boy, this is good news. Did you know, if I got away from God, and if I got thoroughly away from God, we were talking about worldliness uh, a couple of nights ago in this church. <clears throat> if I got so worldly, I couldn't get out of the hole. If I got so carnal, I couldn't dig my way out, <laughs> couldn't repent enough. Did you know if you're down in a hole away from God, you can cry out and ask him to rescue you? Help! Help! That's what revival is. A lot of people don't know that. A lot of people think you need to really pay attention to the sermon, study your Bible, and figure your way out. You know, here you are. You're stuck with some sinful habit. You can't seem to break it. The Bible says Jesus set you free, but you don't feel free. And here you're so worldly, you can hardly unworldly yourself. But did you know there's a way in the Bible where God's people, Old Testament or New, can cry out to God and be revived? He'll reach down into the hole and pull you out. Amen. See, a carnal man can be spiritual. Somebody who loves the world can start loving Jesus Christ Amen. by revival. It's a work of God. Here's the neat thing about it. It's something only God can do. But God has throughout the ages said he will always revive his people if they will humble themselves and seek his face. Amen. James 4, that's New Testament. Yeah, Zechariah 1, that's Old Testament. And I'm going to tell you it's all the way through there where God says, if you'll humble yourself and seek my face, I'll pull you out of the hole. Yeah, and that is obviously an answer to prayer. Because the metaphor is, I'm in trouble, I need to be rescued. That means I'll cry out. That's why revivals always came in answer to prayer, Old Testament or new. You cry out, God, I don't know how to straighten myself out. you got to help me. Help! 
See, whenever God's people become desperate and cry out, he'll pull you up to New Testament Christianity. Really? Wow. It's amazing. So that's what a revival is, and that's what the Great Awakening actually was. Now, let's look up to these verses here. As a matter of fact, you can sit there. I'd like to have the Zechariah guy read Zechariah 1.3. Here's the revival principle. The Baptist principle is, what does the Bible say? And the revival principle is this. Who's reading it? The message of all the prophets. God says, turn to me, and I'll turn to you. You know what the revival principle is? God responds to us. When we respond to him, he responds to us. Something will happen. The Old Testament, believers were disobedient to the law. Some of them had forsaken the true God and dabbled with idolatry. They were in a mess. But you know what? If they would turn back to him with all their heart, he would return to them with all the blessings. Old covenant blessings summed up in the book of Deuteronomy. They would all come back. They wouldn't be on probation. You see it over and over again when godly kings ruling over disobedient people take measures including prayer meetings to cry out to God, and we are sunk. We're in such a mess. But he says, if you turn back to me with all your heart, I'll bring the blessings back. See, don't you remember? In Deuteronomy, he said, uh, your, your, your curses will become blessings, but if you repent, your blessings will be your back, backwards. I said it backwards. Yeah. I'll turn your blessings into curses if you disobey. But if you repent, Deuteronomy 30, I'll turn your curses back into blessings. Amen. See, turn to me and I'll turn to you. Amen. Who's my Malachi person? We're familiar with this passage. Go ahead, read it. That place. Now, you know that passage. Thank you. That's plenty. Okay, now, so Zechariah says, turn to me and I'll turn to you. And Malachi says, return to me and I'll return to you. And all the blessings of the old covenant will be yours if you just turn to me. In other words, God on one level is predictable. In other words, he said, if my people, blah, 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 then will I. Not then might I, then will I. Yep. Now we've got James. Is James in the Old Testament or the New? Okay. Who's going to read? Uh, James, I'd like you to read 8 through 10. Actually, the whole chapter, verses 8 through 10 of chapter 4, the whole chapter is a revival, a call to revival. But go ahead, read verses 8, 9, and 10. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall 
You know, it's amazing how often God says you start by humbling yourself. It almost reads like God is saying this. You know, if you just get off your high horse, I'd do something for you. Our problem seems to be pride. And actually, earlier in chapter 4, he says, God resisteth the proud, but he giveth grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Then he says, draw nigh to God, and he'll draw nigh to you. When I respond to the voice of God in my heart, he will respond to me by bringing the blessings back. This time, the new covenant blessings, which we're going to discuss right now. Uh, and it waits on us. Draw nigh to God, and he'll draw nigh to you. It waits on us. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. Be afflicted and mourn and weep, meaning mean it. I was in Cambodia when I first started traveling. They were having a revival conference, asked me to be part of it. I went over there, and I'm going to tell you, <clears throat> at the end, there were several speakers, some of us Americans, and about 400 Cambodians gathered in a, an auditorium downtown explaining revival at the end of one of those services. Now, they speak Khmer. I think it's Khmer or Khmer. Okay. I don't know a word of it. Okay. But they had a prayer meeting afterwards. And although I didn't know the words, I understood the prayers. And uh, here they were praying, and me and America, and we were praying together, and we heard them praying. I didn't understand the words, but I understood the prayers. They were brokenhearted, crying out to God. And I'm going to tell you, I followed some of them afterwards. Their churches had what we call revival with converts and large baptisms in the weeks that followed. And I'm going to tell you, if we'll humble ourselves and seek the face of God, he will come to us with all the blessings he promised that he would. Here comes the book of Acts again. That's what that is. Now, what are their blessings? I'm going to let you study these yourself, but I'm going to go over them a little bit here. In John uh, chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, it's not written down there. Why don't you write that down? John 13 through 17, often called the upper room discourse, because the talk recorded in John 13 through 17, five chapters, begins in the upper room the night before Jesus died. That's when he instituted the Lord's Supper, probably gave this talk afterwards. He tells them in chapter 17, I'm going away, and their hearts are troubled. Then he's saying, chapter 14, he's saying, I'm going away, but that's not bad news, that's good news. Because the New Testament era will dawn. The greatest time for God's people the world has ever seen. Now, I'm going away, but guess where I'm going? To the right hand of the Father. When I get there, I'm going to intercede for you. And then he says this. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Do you know that fact, Pastor Backhouse? He brings it up over and over again all night. Chapter 15, and whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. 
chapter 16. Maybe you have read this verse where he says, don't ask me for anything. Ask the Father in my name and you've got it. Ask and you shall receive that your joy may be full. He keeps saying, now don't forget this. When I go away, I'm going to be at the right hand of the Father interceding for you. I'll be gone, but my attention will be on you. I'll be interceding for you. And anything, 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 you ask the Father in my name, it's yours. Remarkable answers to prayer. I'll tell you what, when we pray, oftentimes it's very wimpy. We give God all kinds of escapes. But we don't want God embarrassed. If we actually asked him to do for something in such a way that the people in the room would think we really expected him to do, he could be in trouble. So as a pastor, I need to, I need to protect God's reputation. So I never ask for anything. Or I put disclaimers. Dear God, would you send revival to our church? Dear God, would you work in the heart of so-and-so, Mary Ann's husband, and reprove him of sin, righteousness, and judgment? Bring him to the place where he realizes he's a justly condemned sinner and needs Jesus? Oh, God, would you work on his heart this week? If it be thy will, if you've got time to do that, if it's not going to ruin some sovereign plan... See, but that's not what the Lord was talking about that night. He said, you'll be able to ask anything in my name. Then he says that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You know what that sounds like to me? Sounds like they'd like to do it. The Father and the Son would like us to be doing that. Because the Father will be glorified in the Son. If I ask the Father for something in the name of Jesus, and it happens, especially something unlikely, wow, will he be glorified? That's going to happen in the New Testament age. Then he says, when I get up there, you know what I'm going to do? First thing I do when I get up there, I'm sending you a replacement. He's not going to be less than me. He's going to be God, a comforter, which means helper. And it uses the words he and whom, not a thing, but a person. He's going to be God. He's the Holy Ghost. And on the day of Pentecost, he's going to come. And he's going to help you live the Christian life. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father and he will give you another comforter. That he may abide with you forever. Which means in a way he's better than me. <laughs> because I've just told you I'm going away. But the Holy Spirit is never going away. <laughs> while I was with you for three and a half years. Once in a while I wasn't exactly there. Like I was asleep in the boat. Don't you care? Well, they got up one morning, and his cot was empty, and he was out in the wilderness praying. And the whole town had showed up to see him. They went out there saying, Jesus, Jesus, the whole world is looking for you. There were times when you would wake up in the morning, and Jesus wouldn't be there. But you know, when I go away, I'm going to send you a replacement who's going to live inside you. He's going to abide with you forever. He'll always be there. And in many ways, it's going to be better. Such intimacy. God will be on the inside of you from the day of Pentecost on. Wow. And with these changes, there's going to be great New Testament blessings like remarkable answers to prayer. I've got the places to look it up. Obvious help in obeying Christ. Supernatural help to be a good Christian. 
the manifestation of God to his obedient servants. Read those words where he says, I will go away, but you'll be able to see me. If you keep my commandments, I will manifest myself to you. You might go, there must be another meaning. You know what? One reason we go to seminary is to learn how to take the plain meaning of a Bible verse and make it not mean that. You know, I know it reads as if he's saying whatsoever, but that's not really what it means. See, uh, no, of course, I'm being sarcastic. You can expect that the Bible means exactly what it says. See, manifest. Jesus Christ up in heaven is going to manifest himself to the servant who obeys his commandments. Well, we go, what is the meaning of that? And Judas, not Iscariot, who's right there, he asked the question. He says, how are you going to not manifest yourself to the world, but you will to us? Read what he says. He says exactly what he means. There are times when the Lord has encouraged me and you by manifesting himself to us. When I went to this country church, I got there. I knew they had had a bad split before I got there. I was 25 years old. Had a lot of problems on my plate when I got there right at first. And uh, first preached on a Wednesday night, that is, as the pastor. And I was finding out it was worse than I thought. And you know what? I don't know if there's any young men here who are going to be preachers, but I'm going to tell you something. When you candidate at a church, they never tell you everything. <laughs> so uh, I was overwhelmed, and we were unpacking boxes in the parsonage. So then I turned to my wife. Her name is Tony. I said, Tony, excuse me for a few minutes. And I went upstairs. It was in August to the only uh, room in the house with air conditioning. Got down next to the bed. And I knelt and I said, Lord Jesus, in a few minutes, I'm going to have to ask you for a few things. But right now, I just need to know you're with me. And in silence, waiting before him, in a few minutes, I knew. There are many in this room who know what it means. That with the Holy Spirit inside, sometimes God manifests himself to you. Jesus uses the word C-S-E-E. John 14, in one part, says that people can see the Father. Another part says you can see the Spirit. And then Jesus said, you'll be able to see me as a benefit of having the Holy Spirit inside. Wow. Feeling God's feeling. He says, my peace, my love. My joy. I'm going to leave peace with you, but not just generic peace. It'll be my peace. With the Holy Spirit living inside you, you'll be able to feel my feelings, my love, my joy. That rings a bell, doesn't it? The fruit of the Spirit. See, that's the normal Christian life. Then chapter 15, he says, the bottom line is, when all this happens, I'm at the right hand, the Holy Spirit's inside you. You've got to abide in me. And if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. Reproduction. My life and my poor and weak witness actually bringing people into the kingdom. Me, you, 
We were charged with preaching the gospel to the world. Now we're going to have the power that'll be beyond talent, beyond a formula for soul winning. <laughs> no. It'll be something supernatural every time we approach a sinner about Christ. Wow. And all of these blessings that are New Testament blessings, you can find in the book of Acts in almost every chapter where they took advantage of all these promises. What are you talking about? That was the Great Awakening. You know what was happening? The Christians discovered Christianity. Like Ephesians. Chapter 1, Paul has a prayer where he says, I'd like you to discover Christianity. I'd like you to discover what you have in Christ. Especially power from the throne. Then in chapter 3, he says, I want you to discover Christianity. I bow my knees before the father of the whole family in heaven and in earth. Some of God's family is in heaven. Some of it's on the earth. And then he tells you what he asks for. And this is power from within. That's the one that ends with the climax. He is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. Part of the blessings of a revival is Christian people believe, start believing that God can do anything. Amen. Through us, there are no limits. Just because I'm rural, just because they're all Catholics out there, just because they're natives with the special problems that Native Americans have, just because we're up north instead of down south, I'll tell you, it doesn't matter. Full of the Holy Ghost, we're going to see multiplication. Oh, see, that's normal Christianity. So he said. And a revival is when we humble ourselves and seek his face and have the blessings. And Christians discover Christianity. It's really amazing. Now, what about the Great Awakening? Okay, now I've got to give you a background. I know this looks really slow that I'm moving, but you've got to know about it. The Moravian Pentecost. I think there are Moravians around here, aren't there? Did I see a Moravian church? The Moravian church today, like all of them, are uh, apostate. They have departed from the faith of their fathers. If you went to a Moravian church and got saved, it would be a real surprise because they don't even preach the gospel of their forefathers. But in 1727, there was a great revival that, historically speaking, was the mother of all modern-day revivals, the Moravian Pentecost. Wow. Here's the story. Young man by the name of Nicholas von Zinzendorf, he is a nobleman, and he has an estate, a great big estate called Berthelsdorf. That's in Saxony. That's Germany. He is a tender-hearted Christian. His parents were pietists. Pietists were Protestants who believed in Christian experience. They believed in an actual new birth. Now, what are you talking about? The Protestant Reformation was largely political. That's why it spawned wars. It was kings fighting with kings and uh, absolving themselves of the authority of the pope, who was a secular ruler. The Pope was a secular ruler. And many of the reformers were not particularly spiritual. Did you know that? <laughs> Some of them were. Okay. But the pietists were people who were in the Reformation, but they believed in Christian experience, the new birth, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, answers to prayer. So Nicholas was sent off 
to a place where he was trained by one of the great pietists, a guy named Franke, okay? Came back with a great heart uh, and faith. And he came to Berthelsdorf in the 1720s. He said, uh, I would like to invite all of the refugees, everyone being persecuted by Catholic and Protestant kings, to come to Berthelsdorf and find refuge here. And they came from the south, the Czech Republic, Moravia, Bohemia, the Bohemian brethren who claimed to be followers of John Huss. And then also from Germany, other parts of Germany, Baptists came. And these were Bible-believing Christians. They had different theologies. But they all came to Berthelsdorf and formed a town called Herrenhut. Herrenhut means the Lord's watch right there on the property. Now, Zinzendorf wasn't really a preacher, although he did do some preaching. Uh, but he was a tender-hearted and uh, dedicated Christian. And his dream was utopia. We're going to have the new Jerusalem right here. All Christians of all kinds here loving each other. Only it was more like one of those interdenominational churches. They didn't particularly get along. They had different backgrounds, different cultures, different languages, and some difference in Bible interpretation. They were at each other's throats. One of the most heartbreaking times for Zinzendorf is when one of the most godly men in her who said, I've had it, and he moved out. <laughs> and so 1727, Zinzendorf said, I'm going to do something about this. So he had all the heads of households, I'm talking about the men, the different families, come to where he lived. He wrote up a document that basically said this, we're all Christians, we're brothers in Christ, so we're going to defer to each other, we're going to love each other, forbear and love like the Bible says, we're going to get along, we're going to be in unity for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. I say amen too. And he made them all sign the document. And nothing changed. <laughs> nothing. So uh, time goes on. It's in the summer. August, they had a preacher come to preach on Sunday. And everybody was there. He got up to preach and halfway through his sermon. And did you know 1727 isn't that long ago? We have documents written by people who were there for what I'm about to tell you. He was preaching, and then he suddenly stopped. He was like frozen. And he looked up, and he stood there. Then he fell to his knees in silence. And some say he was on his knees for hours. And some of the more spiritual people in the church came out of their pews, and they knelt down too. Finally, he got up, and they got up, and everybody was talking, what happened to you? He said, I don't know what happened to me, but when I was preaching, it was as if Jesus Christ was standing right there, and I couldn't speak anymore. August the 13th, that was Wednesday. They were gathered together for the Lord's Supper, and when they gathered for the Lord's Supper, what happened to the preacher happened to all of them, 300 people in the congregation. The Moravian church, I think there is one around here, I think I saw it, calls it the Moravian Pentecost. There's a great book you ought to read called When the Spirit Came. It was written on the anniversary, 1927, about what happened, what happened after. And they were absolutely transformed. Some said, when we were there for the Lord's Supper, 
after this happened, God manifesting himself to them, we didn't know if we were still on the earth or if we had gone to heaven. And they said, some of the people who wouldn't even speak to each other before the service were embracing each other and forgiving each other. Shortly after that, the men of Hernhut bond themselves together in a pact to pray around the clock. Your family, 6 o'clock in the morning. Your family, 7. Your family, 8. Hour, hour, hour. And they got so they prayed for the world. Matter of fact, Zinzendorf, who was a nobleman, was invited to the coronation of the king of Denmark. While he was there, there was a Native American who was brought over across the ocean. He had become a Christian. He had a story to tell, and everybody liked to hear it. And part of it was his testimony of his salvation. And uh, Zinzendorf said, I'd like you to come with me down to Hernhut. I'd like our people to meet you. So he did. And he wept when he told the story of his conversion, of the fact that his whole family was back across the ocean in America in pagan darkness. And I don't know what to do. I'd like them to be reached for Christ. Two of the young men, I think they were teenagers, after that happened, came before Zinzendorf of the congregation and said, God has called us to go back to so-and-so's family in America and reach them for Christ. And he didn't know what to do with it. Because although the Protestant Reformation was 200 years old, both Calvin and Luther believed that if God was going to convert the heathen, he could do it without us. Kind of that radical, false view of election. Yeah. So there were no Protestant missionaries in 1727. None. There was not a model to follow. There wasn't deputation. There wasn't mission boards. It was two guys who said, We're go we want to go back to America and find his family. So they didn't know what to do about it. So they were praying about it. And then the Moravians aren't Baptists, so they don't vote. What they do is cast lots. <laughs> they still do that today. So they cast lots, and the lots said, send them. So off they went, and they actually found that tribe. And they were the beginning of hundreds of missionaries from that local church because souls were being saved. So that's why they were able to sell. In the next 20 years, they sent hundreds of missionaries all over the world, like the New World, where I lived growing up, Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Salem was a Moravian settlement to reach the Indians. <laughs> In Pennsylvania, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, like Bethlehem Steel, Nazareth. I've been to those two places. Moravian settlements all over the world. And one of them was a man named Peter Bowler, B-O-H-L-E-R, who was one of many who went to England. And while in England, he became acquainted with two very discouraged Anglican preachers, brothers, John and Charles Wesley. And then also with a zealous young man who had gone to Oxford with them, George Whitfield. And then the story goes on, and now we're going to come to the Great Awakening. I'd like to go on for another few minutes, then we'll break at 11 o'clock. So now the Moravian revival really was a background to our Great Awakening, without a doubt, because B is the Evangelical Revival, 1739. The Wesley boys were the sons of a godly pastor. And on his deathbed, he said to them, the inward witness 
is the greatest proof of Christianity. He that believeth on him hath the witness in himself. They went to Oxford. They were training for the ministry. They were very intelligent young men, and they would say to each other, I wonder what Father meant by the inward witness. They had no peace. Both of them were sold on a system of salvation by works. They were going to achieve their salvation by good works. As a matter of fact, John and Charles Wesley ended up coming to America to minister to the Indians to earn their way to heaven. They thought, you know, a missionary goes to heaven. Surely, come on. I don't have any peace. I don't know my sins are forgiven. But they met Peter Bowler and on the boat coming back because they were kicked out. Wesley failed so badly that the colony kicked him out. Got on a boat coming back. There was a terrible storm. There were Moravians on the boat. <laughs> and they were singing. And Wesley wrote in his journal, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? And uh, it is said that Charles, who wrote the songs, wrote the song, Oh, four thousand tongues to sing, remembering the Moravians singing on the boat. They're back in London. Peter Bowler is having a Bible study. They're getting closer to him. Here's what he's telling them. You can know you're saved now. It's not good works. It's faith. It's faith. And Wesley would go, okay, I understand faith, but I don't have faith. And then Bowler said this, Wesley, preach faith until you have faith. Then you'll preach faith. A few things occurred during this time. He was assigned by his superiors to go with a man who was going to be hanged. And you always have to have a minister with you. So he was riding in the wagon with this guy going to the gallows. And uh, the guy didn't have any time to do good works. So he was speaking to him. The man was scared to death. He said, I'm damned. I'm going to hell. It won't be long. I have done so much wrong. So he said, Faith, if you'll trust Jesus Christ, he'll forgive you of your sins. Finally, he decided to turn to the book of Luke and the thief. Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. He read that scripture and explained it to him. Simple faith, trust Christ. He came to save you. He'll save you if you trust him to do it. And he saw the man come to phenomenal peace. His faith glowed before they took him and hanged him. Wesley went back, found Bowler, and he said this, I was just for the man who was hanged today. He had more peace in his heart before he was hanged than I've got right now. And then at Aldersgate Street, I was brought up in the Methodist Church. Aldersgate is the name they like to use. At Aldersgate Street, they were having a Bible study run by Peter Bowler. And that night, they were studying Romans and reading Luther's commentary on the just shall live by faith. And in his diary, and you know what? If you want to buy a good book, it's the heart of Wesley's journal. You can buy it. It is great. He says, tonight, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I believed that he did die for me and that my sins were forgiven. And Wesley came out of that a transformed man. So Wesley, Wesley Whitfield, 
young guys. Now, I'm going to give you an exact date, and that is January the 1st, 1739. These men were converted, helped by the Moravians to come to Assurance. They went to a Moravian watch night service. Okay, that's New Year's Eve. At our church, when we had a watch night service, we almost always had a Christian movie. Remember those? And volleyball and pizza. Got to do something. Then 11 o'clock at night, we assemble back in the auditorium so we can pray the new year in, you know, if we're still awake. And some poor soul has to preach at 1130 to 12. That's what we do. What the Moravians did for watch night is they would watch and pray. And they stayed up that night and prayed. And Whitfield in his journal says about 3 o'clock in the morning, we had a Pentecostal season. He didn't mean they spoke in tongues, but he meant that the presence of God was manifested in a way that they were never the same again. Secular history books say that the evangelical revival, a pastor sometimes calls it the Great Awakening or the Wesleyan Revival, began at the Fetter Lane Chapel watch night service, January 1, 1739, because they left their chains, went to their country, went to preach salvation by grace through faith. Your gifts to the Anglican church will not get you to heaven. Doing good doesn't make up for doing sins. It's got to be Christ alone. You must be. They would get kicked out of church. Matter of fact, John Wesley was kicked out of his father's church. You can't preach here anymore. You know what they did? Whitfield learned to preach in the open air. Famous story, John Wesley went out to the cemetery next to his father's church and stood on his father's grave and preached to hundreds of people. And it was something like the world has never seen. England was a very wicked place. But over the period of the evangelical revival, they were transformed as thousands of people were saved. And incidentally, Baptists were involved in that too. Great thing. So now these things had occurred or were going on. In England, what I call the evangelical awakening or evangelical revival, and uh, Moravian Pentecost happened a few years before. I'm going to go just a couple of more minutes. So in America, though, what was happening in America? America, these were British colonies. Some of them were set up by Christians who came to this country for religious freedom. Someone has said that the early settlers either came for God or gold. And, you know, you can trace those who came for God. You can trace from them our liberty. Those who came for gold discovered tobacco and instituted slavery, which I think still curse us today. Now, up in the north, Massachusetts Bay Colony, the New England colonies, had been established by the Puritans. But now we're in the 1700s, and you know what? The grandchildren of the Puritans and the Pilgrims had forsaken the morals of their grandparents. They were not even living moral lives. And the faith. They they still went to church. Matter of fact, the way the Puritans set it up was that the town, the town government was connected with the church and your taxes paid the preacher. And if you were a member of the church, you had a right to vote in a town election. And so they had to make 
room for this because many of their children were not converted and did not even claim to be believers. So they had what they called the halfway covenant <laughs> where they would say, if you go to church because this has political ramifications, you can take communion and be a member even if you're not converted. The halfway covenant, which corrupted everything worse and worse. And there was a guy named Solomon Stoddard that I'll shut up. In uh, Northampton, Massachusetts, who said, it's awful, but there's something we can do about it. There's something we can do about it, not just sit here and bemoan what's happened to the children of the Puritans. There's something we can do about it. He was one of the early Americans to use the word revival. Revival. 